From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, happy Thursday to all of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father, pick up the phone and give us a call. Wide open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your celebrity call screener is Mr. Jeff Burson, who I'm guessing is probably doing something with social media, or is Michael McCall. Michael McCall doubling up on our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Okay. So November is a big month in these parts. Well, it's interesting that some months have themes to them when it comes to the liturgy. And the theme of this month uh, is very much and definitely the church. First of all, we start with All Saints Day yesterday, so we have the church triumphant. Then today we have All Souls Day, which is the commemoration of the poor souls in purgatory, and so that's the church suffering. And then the church, we used to call it church militant, and not like a military uh, society, but in the sense of um, a person who's in the middle of a battle looking at the end of the battle. And the battle in this case would be this life. The battlefield would be us, because the primary thing we're struggling against is our own ego. And the primary goal is, of course, to become a saint or to go to heaven. And that we can see in several of the feasts that have to do with dedications of church buildings, especially the dedication of the Basilica of St. John Lateran, which is the Pope's cathedral. So this leads us to the idea, first of all, of thanksgiving for our church, the church has lots of black eyes, and it's had lots of, as any human society does, made up of fallible human beings, uh, has had a lot of uh, problems throughout the 2,000 years it's been in existence. But we're still here, and we're here quite powerfully, too, there are still about a billion Catholics, at least registered Catholics, in the world. The only rival religion to ours 
would be Islam. And I know that people who live in the United States probably think that Protestantism is as large a religion as Roman Catholicism. And that's simply not true because of our missionary efforts, especially after the discovery of the New World. We have all kinds of um, pres presence. And it used to be even greater when the sisters were constituted and had lots of hospitals and schools and that sort of thing. We still have, though, how much priests are involved in it is another issue. But we still have the largest university outside the continent of Europe, which is actually Santa Tomas in Manila, which was founded before Harvard. And there are 40,000 students that go to Santa Tomas. It's the largest university in the Far East. So all these things lead us to the idea that we have a unique society. The Catholic Church is not an earthly society, strictly speaking. It has an earthly aspect to it, which are the things that we govern in canon law and synods and popes and bishops and that sort of thing. But because its central act is really the Mass, it also has a heavenly aspect to it. And that's why we say the fullness of the church is not found on earth, it's found in heaven. And all of us are in constant union and community with each other. Our communion as a society transcends our physical presence. So you can see that in today's um, celebration, which is basically prayers for the dead. The uh, ability of the living to influence the destiny of the dead is quite impressive in Roman Catholicism. I remember there was a television show, oh, it would be back in the early 70s, which was called The Six Wives of Henry VIII. And the third wife, Jane Seymour, was still in very great sentiment a Catholic. I believe she'd been raised in a convent even. And so she became exceedingly distressed when the people were forming the Anglican Church, Cranmer and Company, should I say decatholicizing it, and limited masses for the dead to one. And uh, she said, but tell the king, she said, but you know, it's a holy and wholesome thing for the prayer for the dead. How unmerciful we are to, to think that we only need to say one mass. Well, he passes her off and tells her that she's a woman to stay out of theology and things like that. However, when she died, and this is historically accurate, when she died giving birth to the longed-for heir of the throne, Edward VI, the king says to the chief Protestantizer, I, her last request, which I suppose we must honor, is that a thousand masses be said for the repose of her soul. So she won in the end, really. We won with a Catholic sentiment. Of course, eventually, they decided the mass wasn't a sacrifice, so they forbid them altogether. But we don't look on it that way. We think that by a union of charity, 
we can help people who can't help themselves now, who are not worthy of hell. They didn't do uh, mortal sin. They didn't die in mortal sin. By the same token, they're not yet ready for heaven, that we can help them to speed along their process through the union of charity, through applying the uh, merits and charity of Christ as a fittingly and most deep friendly act. So our church has a uh, is really a divine society that has both an earthly and a heavenly aspect to it. Both have to be affirmed in order for us to understand the month of the church. Because in this month of the church, as I said before, we are dealing not only with the church in its final constitution in heaven where the saints have finally won the victory and the battle, or at least we recognize them as doing so, and the people in purgatory are there, but they need to be ready to receive from heaven in a proper, full, free sense. And we who are on earth struggling along, who also depend on their prayers and on their interests, all this in this marvelous society in which we uh, help to influence each other, all based on Christ and all based on the faith. That's why we call the church the mystical body of Christ. Because an actual body has only its actual members in it. But the mystical body has even its potential members. So all those who are members or potential members of the church are considered to be related to our society. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. If you're outside North America, we've got a number for you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church Get our trusted Catholic news in your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. A couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. 
got an email from Noah, and he says, Father, Aquinas asserts that an infinite series cannot exist, that there must be a first cause. In math, there can be an infinite series. Does this disprove Aquinas' theory? There can't be an infinite series of real things. you got to remember that the things that are present in mathematics, for example, in, in geometry, are not in the real world. There's no such thing as a perfect triangle in the real world, nor a perfect square in the real world. And in the second degree of abstraction, though you can imagine the um, infinite series of number either way, there is no such thing. So uh, the comparison fails because it's not really dealing with a proper series of real physical or metaphysical causes. It's rather dealing with uh, abstract uh, ideas with their possibilities. And number is one of them regarding how much you can have of it. Mm -hmm. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-EWTN. We head now to San Antonio, Texas. First up today on the phones is Heather. She's listening on Ave Maria Radio's app. Heather, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, the plenary indulgence that a person can gain on November 1st through 8th by visiting a cemetery with mental prayer for the holy souls. Um, I'm just wondering, if you visit more than one cemetery, or you go to several cemeteries on several different days, I'm wondering if you can gain more than one plenary indulgence. Uh, yes, but obviously if the visit is like two minutes later, it wouldn't be for you. In other words, we used to have a practice in the church called totius quotius in Latin. And it meant uh, as many times as you visited a church, actually, on All Souls Day and prayed for the poor souls, you got a plenary indulgence. So when I was a novice, the way we implemented that was, I must admit I found this difficult. Um, you, you went to the door of the church, walked outside and came back in and measured how many times you had done it to see how many souls you'd gotten out of purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, yeah, I, w I would say I yes, of course. But I mean, suppose I got a plenary indulgence now, and five minutes later I got another one. I mean, what sense does it make? It didn't didn't work the first time. Unless unless you shot somebody during those five seconds. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, it depends on. But in in principle, I, I would answer yes. Let me let me ask you a little follow up on Heather's behalf here. Could you could you gain additional plenary indulgences, and could they be applied to others? Yes, that's what I was saying. Yeah, gotcha. That's what Totius Quotus was about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Thanks, Heather. We appreciate the phone call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Bonitia is in Mason City, Iowa, listening to EWTN Radio today. Bonitia, you are on with Father Brian Malady. Oh, thank you for taking my call. And uh, just, uh, I was at a Greek festival and uh, bought a Greek dinner, and they passed out a brochure, and it said that the Catholic Church is not the true church, that the Greek church is the true church. Well, they've always thought that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's partially based on a theological dispute over the creed, because we added, and with the Son to the creed in Rome about 800 and there was this um, theologian I guess you'd call him from Constantinople who later decided that was heretical his name was Photius and they sort of divided over that and then it got all involved in the difference between the Greeks and the Latins because you know the cultures were quite different and the Greeks carry it so far, or those churches that are influenced by them, as to claim that we're not the true church. Well, if you think about a lot of the things about the Greek church, we have to be the true church, because they have many wonderful things. They're not heretics, obviously. They're not like Protestants. They're a real church. But who's the head? No one really knows. It's not the patriarch of Constantinople because he can say what he wants and the people can feel free to agree or disagree with him. No one really knows who's in charge there. Now, fortunately, they're very interested in tradition, especially liturgical traditions. So they never changed any of those, which is great. But, and when we recognize their Eucharist is valid, and, in, and we think, in a case of obvious urgent necessity, we welcome them to our church and we can go to theirs. But it's not reciprocated, believe me. Uh, a lot of this has to do with cultural problems. And uh, they can say that all they want, but can they trace their church back to the apostles? You know, supposedly the Church of Constantinople was founded by St. James. But the Patriarch of Constantinople was not one of the early patriarchs. It was basically invented when Constantine built the city. And uh, so it's a kind of... I don't know what word you'd use exactly. Kind of hypocritical for them to make statements like that. If they were real, a little more... Um, peaceful about it and said, well, we disagree on this and we're not going to go to Roman allegiance instead of they're not the true church, they're not the only church of Christ. How did they know? And again, they don't have any authority for that. So, and they really haven't moved anyways theologically since the schism, which was the in 1054, which was where they, we parted company with them. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Alice is in the great state of Ohio listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Alice, welcome to the program. What's your question today? Thank you, and thank you for taking my call. I have a question about uh, if you're cremated and you do not want to be buried in a cemetery, and I understand you can be buried in some consecrated ground. I was wondering what stipulations there might be on that, and like if you were raised on the farm and wanted to be buried on the farm, could you do that? About the farm issue, I don't really know. I don't live in a part of the country that has farms. Um, Consecrated ground is what a cemetery is. That's what they call it, a cemetery. So you wouldn't, you know, in the case of the farm, I guess the priest would have to come consecrate the ground first, bless it. But they have to be buried in consecrated ground. Yeah. Now, there are people that want to be buried at sea, which is possible. You can have permission for that. But you cannot scatter the ashes, which is considered to be horribly disrespectful. After all, your body participated in the good that you did with your soul, and it's just as holy. God bless you, Alice. You may that might be a better question for uh, a priest in your local area with regard to the farm portion of it, anyway. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. Couple of open lines for you at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Um, Anne is in Detroit, Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Anne, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is not deeply theological. It's, um, it has to do with what Father mentioned a few callers ago, and it was about um, how people uh, what erroneously think are our country is predominantly made up of Protestants and fathers said such not the case because of the huge efforts of, uh, missionaries, uh, religious, uh, sisters, brothers throughout our history. So do you, do you have any idea how like percent, uh, population Catholics, so the United States, you know, half the population Catholic, or, you know, is it three to one for, you know, three Catholics to one Protestant? Do you have any idea? Well, first of all, I'm being misquoted. I was talking about the world. I said it only seems so in this country because we do have so many Protestants here. But regarding the how many people were in the church, I was talking about the whole world. Uh, and no, I don't have any idea. I, I do know in the United States that if you take all the Protestant denominations together, that they would have almost equal, if not more, than Catholics. This was not a Catholic country, as you remember, for many, many years. But I don't, I don't really know the numbers, no. Not, all, not, not memorized in my head, no. <laughs> yeah, just a, a real quick search. Um, it says that roughly 48.9% of Americans are Protestant and 23% are Catholics. 
Right. But if you take the world... Right. Different story. Totally different story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Very good. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. St. Gabriel Communications in Garden City, Kansas is celebrating their eighth year as an EWTN affiliate. Congratulations to James Janda and his team at KSGC 100.5 FM from all of us here at EWTN radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got open phone lines and time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Kathy is in the great state of Oklahoma listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Kathy, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, Father Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a couple, just two quick questions for you. Uh, One, I have a lot of religious articles in my home that have not been blessed. And I was, there's a lot. And I was just wondering if I were to uh, have a priest come and do a home blessing, would that take care of blessing all the objects in my home? If he intends it to, yes. I mean, just asking the including those those articles in the blessing, yeah. And what was your other question, Kathy? My other question was, I am a lay Dominican, and um, I wonder, when I wear my scapular, it always has fallen on my shoulders and everything. Is it all right if I wear it just so that it's tucked in my undergarment? <laughs> you wear it so that it... I didn't get it. Your what's your undergarments? So that it could be tucked into her undergarments as opposed to just... Yes, of course. Yeah. Yep, not a problem, Kathy. Put your mind at rest. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We've got an email from Joyce, and she says, How were moral truths created? Atheists that I speak to say that our brains and nature evolve our nervous systems to create moral truths. <laughs> moral truths weren't created. Uh, the things were created. And moral truth is a reflection of our minds where we understand what the truth is about our possible activities regarding those things or ourselves. But nobody create. we didn't create them as truths. As truths, they're thoughts. And so they, the mind discovers them. Uh, Nick is watching us on Facebook Live, and he wants to know if holy days of obligation are supposed to be treated like the Sabbath as far as work goes. Yeah, th- yeah that's an interesting question. 
uh, insofar as you can, I would say yes. Um, a lot of the Europeans had holy days where they did not work. In fact, in the Middle Ages, everybody complained so much because they couldn't get people to work but about half the year because they were so busy going to church. But um, uh, yes, but remember, the Catholic ideas about this are very... Um, they're, they're not strict in the sense that it's servile work that's condemned. And how you define servile work is basically work which is trying and also is probably lucrative. Now, if your livelihood depends on the fact that you have to work at your company and it's a holy day, even if it's a Sunday, I was once forced to work on Sunday when I was young, then you, okay, fine, but you go to Mass. You have to go to Mass, at least. And uh, we do not have all these complicated laws, like the Jews, about how far you can take your ass on Sunday and how much you can do this. And They're even having uh, had a dispute in the parliament, I believe, in Israel, about what buses you could take on the Sabbath and what uh, what elevator you had to take on the Sabbath. And No, no, we, we don't do any of that stuff. Any, any consideration like that Christ did away with is a general prohibition to rest your mind through contemplation. But the obligation would be the same. Obviously, at Christmas, we take time off. Now, of course, a lot of it's taken up with working harder on Christmas than you do during not, uh, when it isn't Christmas, but it's supposed to be a time when you think more about God. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, Brian wants to know why we assign patronage to saints. Um, so I assume you mean like so-and-so's the patron saint of such and such. I believe that's where he's, what he's the asking. Iron workers or something. That's or right. Or sailors. Or, well, because uh, the saints are interested in everything we do. And in a special way, when we have a profession where we want God to help us and to bless us, we try to find, or the church does for us, a saint which would be sympathetic to what we're going through in carrying forth this procession. Now, sometimes the connections are very hard to see. Um, you know, why Saint so-and-so is a, a patron saint of something it doesn't have much to do with what the profession's about. It has to do with some incident that happened in the saint's life, and the connections can be quite obscure sometimes. But um, that's the reason, to bless and help us in our journey toward heaven in a certain kind of activity. Um. Here's one I've, I've never heard myself personally before, but Keith writes in, 
St. Justin Martyr used the term the president of the assembly in his description of the Mass. What is he referring to? He's referring to what we call the priest. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's yeah. easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, th- we got to remember that the terminology for orders developed over time. Uh, the word presbyter was used for a long time, like Presbyterians. That's why they call themselves, I suppose, Presbyterians. But um, the president of the assembly, that's why in Vatican II they tried to use that word, only it developed into um, a kind of leader of a group discussion format (laughs) instead of a sacrifice. Um, Oftentimes in older books that come from the 60s, the Vatican II era, you'll find the president of the assembly. And we used to call the chair, the presider's chair, from which the priest sat, where the mm-hmm. priest sat. Yeah, that's the origin of the terminology, yeah. Uh, we head now to the great state of Nebraska. Jenny is listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Jenny, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Happy All Souls Day. Same I to was you. wondering, thank you. I was wondering if you could comment on why we sing the psalm at Mass, and um, any tips for, I am a cantor, and I, so I sing the psalm, and uh, any ways to just keep it solemn, and to help relate that this is the Word of God, not just another song. Thank you. All right, well, I assume she means the responsorial psalm. That's right. Um, well, first of all, psalms should be naturally sung. They were sung in the temple, not just not recited. We don't tend to um, sing psalms a great deal, but that's the origin of hymns. Uh, hymns are separate from the psalms of the office, but in the Protestantizing of the church, like the 17th, or 18th century, songs like uh, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, they're all psalms that are metricized and then set to tunes. Isaac Watts was famous for this in English. So we sing them because psalms are supposed to be sung, and they should be done in a simple melody, uh, but one which evokes... Um, some bit of religiosity and solemnity. You know, in the Latin liturgy, of course, they're quite complicated sometimes. Um, The chant for them is quite complicated at times. But at the present time, we use more simple tones. Now, unfortunately for some people, that means anything goes as far as what they sing. I heard the most horrendous things sung in place of the responsorial psalm. But the responsorial psalm is also meant to focus your attention on the theme of the readings. Sometimes you have to search for it, but any good commentary will tell you why they use that particular psalm. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833 
Um, Judd writes in, why are there differences between the different gospel accounts, and how can we know that the Bible is inerrant if it has these variances? Oh, okay, well, that's an easy question to answer. you got to remember, our church, our revelation, has two sources, scripture and tradition. Tradition is the word of God preached. Scripture is the word of God written down. Now, tradition includes and is founded in the preaching of the apostles. So the apostles went out to preach after Christ went to heaven. And they each had their take, especially for their audiences, on his life. So, for example, the tradition idea is that Matthew preached to the Jews. And so that's why he talks so much about the law. Also, because the Jews did not accept the testimony of women, the uh, representation we have of Christ's childhood, his infancy, and his birth is Joseph's point of view. Um, Paul uh, was, uh, excuse me, um, Luke was for the Gentiles. Luke wasn't an apostle, so he didn't have direct experience, but he was the scribe and companion to Paul. So Paul, as you recall, was sent to preach to the Gentiles, and so that influenced the manner in which Luke presented his gospel, and that's why you have so many charming details about medicine and in the miracles, what were the sicknesses, and also why in the infancy narratives the Gentiles accepted the testimony of women, and so we see Christ's birth from Mary's point of view there, and then later on, um, from Peter, it's stated in the one of the early uh, uh, passages that uh, the introduced the manuscript of the Bible when Peter was in the household of Caesar under house arrest he sought to proselytize the members of Nero Caesar's household and he was asked to do this partially by having the scrolls because they didn't use books remember they had scrolls read of both Matthew and Luke and he would explain from his personal experience, Peter, the differences between the two and what, from his point of view, was his experience. And, of course, Mark was Peter's scribe, and he took notes on this, and then it was such an important thing, the community considered the commentary so important, that then after Peter died, they had him publish it. So these three sources, John is a different story. John is mostly meant to teach theology. It's not a chronological account in any sense of Christ's life. And you'll notice it has no infancy narrative. It has a beautiful prologue. Um, but um, in any case... The origin of the whole thing is preaching and to different audiences. 
And so that both the Jews and the Gentiles and the people who to be converted might experience the difference. Uh, that's why we have three different representations. <clears throat> they all are inspired by God. They all correspond to what Jesus actually did and taught. But they do so as many things do from different points of view of people who witnessed it or <clears throat> at least new people who gave witness to the truth of it. For example, in Mark, you will have no infancy narrative because Peter wasn't there. And Mark is the only gospel where you will not find a reference to Peter's primacy over the church because he was very humble and he didn't want that put in there, especially because he betrayed our Lord. So that's how you account for the differences. Be sure to check out The World Over live tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN television and radio. Uh, Raymond is joined by Gover uh, Governor Mike DeWine of the great state of Ohio. We'll be talking about a very important ballot issue on abortion in the state of Ohio coming up this month. Uh, this really next week, a week from uh, Tuesday, a week from this past Tuesday. Uh, also, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller will be talking about the Synod, as will Robert Royal of thecatholicthing.org. That's the world over tonight, 8 Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Alan wants to know what happens to an atheist who is a good person after they die. Well, <laughs> they don't believe in God, and therefore they can't even go to limbo. Um, it's not good. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But it probably should be noted that, you know, we, we're not in a position to know exactly where their soul was at the time of death, right? Uh, well, no, but if, if he doesn't know whether he asked the question, right. he said, what happens to an atheist when they die? As presumably that person hasn't converted at all and still does not believe in God. Um, if you don't believe in God... I'm afraid it's very bad. <laughs> um, you have to at least believe in God to have some kind of mitigation. Uh, email here from Anna, and she says, this is my question for you. Is it a mortal sin to break a promise? Okay, well, it depends on the promise. Uh, obviously, if you promise to go to the store tomorrow and you don't go, that's not a mortal sin. That's a venial sin, because <laughs> it's about a trivial matter. Remember, mortal sins have to be about grave matter. So only if the promise was about something very, 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 very important would it be considered a mortal sin. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We can still squeeze in a phone call or two at 833-288-3986. Shelby writes in, Hello, my name is Shelby, and I recently came into the Catholic Church. My question is this. I know that it is a mortal sin to miss, holy, uh, to miss a holy day of obligation, 
But what if you're not able to attend a Holy Day of Obligation because you are on a work trip and there's not a Catholic church in the town that you can attend or get to? Is that still considered a sin if a person misses for work-related reasons and they want to go but can't? I'm glad you asked this. It's very basic. Um, The uh, prohibition is through your own fault. Something is a sin when you're required to do it and you omit to do it through your own fault. If it's not through your own fault, but it's because you're required to do this for work-related purposes, then you haven't committed uh, a mortal... You committed a mortal sin, yes, objectively, but you haven't... It doesn't impinge on your soul. You're not guilty. So, remember, it has to be voluntary, which means it has to be done through your own fault. And Joseph wants to know how he can explain the infallibility of Big T tradition to his Protestant family members. <laughs> Big T. Good luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> Big T tradition, huh? Um, well, <clears throat> the only way you can possibly get this to work is if you ask them where the Bible came from. Did they think it just fell out of heaven in the King James Version? What was its origin? Uh, And you have to ask them if you think, they think that the preaching of the apostles had some authoritative value. And if it did, then that's what the capital tradition, T tradition is. All we're doing is participating in the mind of the apostles. Now, the problem is you can even get many of the Protestants to admit that certain of the things they believe are are wrong. For example, I always use this. I had a friend who's an evangelical, a very strong evangelical, and actually his evangelical Protestantism saved him from very great problems. But he asked me one day, he said, what is this Mary bit with you people anyway? And I said, well, do you believe in scripture? Oh, yeah. And I said, literal interpretation? Yeah. Well, it says in the Bible, all generations will call me blessed, which is all we're doing with Mary. And he goes, gee, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And then I have another evangelical friend. He's Puerto Rican. He's even kind of a minister because he founded his own church in a way. But um, he said, uh, I forget how the subject came up or how it was couched, but he, he, he was condemning divorce and we were discussing how sad divorce was. And he said, well, yes, it's very true. He says, I'm against divorce, but I got divorced. <laughs> so, uh, hello, you're against divorce, but you got divorced. Yes. Now, what kind of sense does that make? Um, but the capital T tradition is remember, just the preaching of the church. 
And which came first, the writing down of it or the preaching of it? It was the preaching of it that came first. So no, I don't think anyone would seriously, that had any deep brains, maintain that the Bible just sort of dropped from heaven. Nobody wrote it, and nobody decided because you know, as you know, the apocrypha. They what they consider the apocrypha, we don't. But there is an apocrypha of sacred scripture also, and that was determined largely based on what the church believed, which is tradition with a capital T. And Stan wants to know, am I committing a grave sin if I drink around my brother-in-law who is an alcoholic? Well, I don't know if I'd say grave sin, but you're certainly not helping. Uh, you're your brother needs to be encouraged in his sobriety, if he has sobriety. And if he doesn't, he doesn't need to be encouraged in his alcoholism. Because all he'll wind up doing is harming himself and his family, uh, everything he holds dear. But it's very hard, it's a very hard condition to overcome. Because it's it's like chemical dependency, and basically the people who've dealt with it in Catholicism, people like Sister Ignatia and Dr. Bob, uh, came to realize that it was a lack of a prayer life and spirituality. So, yeah, I would say that you're in, putting a person in the occasion of sin. Uh, um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know the the kind of the Catholic origins of some of those yes. programs. Yes. Well, Sister Ignatius is probably the, as far as I can tell, probably the primary inspiration behind it. And uh, she founded Rosary Hall, and Dr. Bob went there, and she did it because she was having problems with uh, dependency on music, of all things, Gregorian <laughs> chant. But she had enough to have a breakdown. So she had all these men of different religions come there. And she snuck them in and then tried to teach them a prayer life. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, uh, Jeff Burson and uh, social media maven, also Mr. Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless. Yeah.